You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. I think that we need to remember what Paul's working against each week in order to see the way that he is constructing his arguments. The, the claim of the Judaizers, well, if you're new to Mercy's Door, you've got to understand that this letter, this passage this morning is taking place in the middle of a letter. And the letter was, was written with Paul contending for his friends in Galatia and, and these churches that he planted because some men have come behind him called the Judaizers uh, trying to undermine the gospel message that he had preached to them and to attach works of the law to the gospel of grace that he had preached to them and to tell them, no, to, yes, you do need Jesus, but you also need to attach to Jesus your obedience to the law in order to make yourself right with God. So, so Paul is contending with, with that error and trying to appeal to his friends to reject this false gospel and to return to the gospel of the grace of Christ that he had preached to them. Now, the message that the Judaizers were preaching where you need to keep the law, in particular the ceremonies of the law, the, the kosher food laws and the feast days and circumcision and, and, and all of the different calendar dates and all of that, you, you're not going to be accepted by God unless you keep all of these ceremonial laws as well. You need Jesus and your observance to the law to be made right with God. That's the message of the Judaizers. And where Paul has already spoken is like in Galatians chapter 3, his response to the Galatians is to, is to call them fools. He gets worked up thinking about how they turned from the gospel of grace and accepted this false gospel of works. And he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Like, like who, is, who has put you under a spell? He's exasperated as he's writing to them. And the truth is, is that we are always looking, not just the Galatians, but like you and I, we're always looking for some way to make ourselves right with God. It, it's like intrinsic to us in the flesh to try to seek out some way to make ourselves right with God. But in some measure, how can I make myself better than somebody else that I can make an offering to God that, that I was further along than he was? I was, I was a, a better son than he was. I was more obedient uh, than he was. We can't really stomach the idea that we can't earn it. It's almost too good to be true for us. And so there's something enticing about the message that comes behind the gospel that starts telling you what you've got to do now. What do, you, what do you have to do to attach to this message of grace in order to really, I mean, yeah, the grace is great, but okay, can we just get to the real stuff? What do you got to do? What do you got to do? It's enticing. There's something in us that wants to hear it. Now, we need to remember that the Galatian context is a Gentile context. They were not Jews before the gospel came to them. The Galatians were Gentiles. They knew very little of the Jewish laws and customs. They were pagans. They were Greeks primarily, and their observances were all over the place. And Paul calls out here at the beginning of, his, of, of this passage in, in verse 8 where he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Verse 9, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. So Paul is, is highlighting for these, for, for these Galatians, listen, before you knew the Lord, before Christ, 
you were enslaved by those who by nature were not gods. And he means, he means idols. Paul says that by coming under the law for righteousness, by subscribing to this message that these Jewish Judaizers were espousing to them, that they are actually reverting to their idolatry. See, it makes, I think, a lot of sense for the Judaizers to believe what they believe. Like, they were struggling with their own unique struggle, which is laying down what they had believed was their righteousness within their Jewish customs and turning to a gospel of grace. But when they brought that issue to the Gentiles, the Gentiles, they weren't, they weren't trying to, like, return back to the Jewish custom that they used to keep. They were taking onto themselves the Jewish customs and believing that it could bring to them their righteousness, or it could add to their righteousness. It makes some sense for the Judaizer. It does not make a ton of sense for the Gentile, who had never been under the law, who knew nothing of the law, who received the gospel of, of grace from Paul, and then they hear news about all of these ceremonies and customs that they need to keep. And Paul makes a really big claim, and if any of the Judaizers heard it, I'd be, I'm pretty sure that it would have really ticked them off, where, where he says to the Gentiles, by coming, by putting yourself under the law, you're reverting to your old idolatrous ways before you knew Christ at all. So he is putting on equal footing adherence to the law for your righteousness and all of the pagan practices that they had looked look to for their righteousness. He said to do this is to revert to what you were doing before the gospel of Christ ever came to you. That's a huge claim. That's a huge claim. What Paul is saying here is that the Gentile who knew nothing of the law and the Jew who had been living, trying to look to the law to be their righteousness with God had always been on equal footing. That they both needed the same thing, they'd both received the same thing, and that the Gentile turning to the old lie about how we will get our righteousness is actually just to revert to and resume your practices before the gospel came to you. That's a huge claim. And when we talk about those who are enslaved to those that were not by nature gods, we're talking about idolatry, and Paul wrote about it more in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. He wrote, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. And so Paul, thinking about this idea that, listen, it's in your idolatry that you actually start to think to yourself that by what I eat and by what I do, that I'm making myself righteous. That you can be doing things that you think are actually making you right with God, but in reality you're subscribing to idolatry. That you can even take the laws of God himself and turn them into an idol. This is what the nation of Israel had done, and this is what the Judaizers were compelling the, the Galatians to do, to take the law of God and to turn it into an idol. And some of us are going to hear that. We're going to kind of clutch our pearls a little bit. We're going to be like, how can it ever be bad for me to like, follow the laws of God? 
And I want to answer that for you by swapping out the word law for the word tree. Okay, I'm going to swap out the word law for the word tree. Did God make trees? Are trees good? If you bow down to a tree and look to the tree to be your righteousness, are you taking the tree and making it an idol? Did God make the law? Is the law good? Yes. If you bow down to the law and look to the law to be your righteousness, are you now making the law an idol? Yes, because God did not give the law to be a method for us to attain righteousness. That wasn't the purpose why he gave it. We talked about that at length. He didn't give it to us for that purpose. So to look to it, to do that for us, is to treat the law in a way God never intended and therefore to elevate it to a state of an idol. If this thing is what saves you, then it is your idol. If this thing is what makes you right with God, it is an idol. And a lot of people think that the most holy standard for the way that we live is always the strictest standard. They're going to give up a lot. They're going to deprive themselves of a lot. They're going to sacrifice a lot. They're going to be really diligent in lots of different areas. And then there's this sunk cost that comes upon them where they think about all the sacrifice that they're making and subscribing to these different observances. And suddenly they become really protective of these observances and of these standards that they've set up for themselves. And, and, and over time, they burden themselves with things that the Lord Jesus did not burden them with. And then it's not enough just for them to be under the burden that they placed upon themselves, but now they need to spread that burden to others in order that they can somehow start to believe this really is making me righteous because I'm further along in the burden that I created in my own mind than you are in the burden that I placed upon you. And this was the nefariousness of the Judaizers. It wasn't enough for them just to slave away under a right form of righteousness that they'd invented, that they'd wrongly believed but they needed to heap it upon others in order that they could point to them and say, we are further along than them. Look at us. And this is the nature of legalism. But in Jesus, we know that the strictest standard is not always the most holy. Although sometimes it is. And this is where I want to hold out to you this tension where morally, the righteous standards of God are far superior to what you think. The righteous requirements of God are far more than what you believe. To go one further, the righteous standard of God is far in excess of what he wrote down on stone tablets to share with his people. Like God himself is not personally bound by ten things. God is righteousness himself. We know that morally the standards of God are way higher than we think because Jesus taught as much in his Sermon on the Mount. He raised the bar. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's Jesus talking. Jesus has taken, the, he, he pulls out the Ten Commandments, and he picks one, an easy one. You shall not murder. He says, you've heard that. I say to you, you who insult your brother will be liable to the council. You who say you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Listen, some of you guys are thinking, if I keep the Ten Commandments, that's going to be an adequate righteousness with God. You're reducing the righteous requirements of God to what he spelled out in the law, as if what God was trying to do was give you step-by-step how to be perfectly righteous like him. And that's what you need. You need to be perfectly righteous before the Father in order to to enter his kingdom. And you're going to go there and you're going to say, I didn't murder And that's supposed to be good enough. And you have diminished the righteous requirements of God to a stone tablet. As if God was trying to reveal to you all his righteous requirements when he handed those tablets of stone over. It was not the purpose of the law. It was not the purpose of the law. In fact, even by reducing his righteous requirements upon the nation of Israel for a time on those tablets, They couldn't even keep those. And even those who felt that they could keep those, Jesus exposed in the Sermon on the Mount that they hadn't actually kept them. Because behind every law is the heart of the law. And you can keep the law with your hand and violate the righteousness of God in your heart. Not just that you can, but each and every day, each and every one of you are. And this is what Jesus meant when he said that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees but to know and follow the law? And he said, yours is going to have to be greater than that. You're going to need righteousness down to the core, down to the heart. You're going to need all of the motives of the heart to be totally right. You can't get mad at your brother. You can't call someone a fool. That's the righteousness that you're going to need to enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees isn't going to cut it. And do you know what the Judaizers do with with a command like that from Jesus is they go and heap more stuff into their Mishnah. They add to their legal code 600 more things, 9,000 more things. I've got to expand this out. So I've, got, I've got to do more and more and more. And what they're not hearing is what Jesus is saying, which is you can't do it. You need a righteousness that you can't perform. The best of you at law keeping are the scribes and Pharisees. And it's not enough. And as much as Jesus elevates the moral standards, the righteousness of God above what we think, we also see that other times the Pharisees are thinking of Jesus and his disciples that they're not strict enough. How silly that Jesus would say, your righteousness must exceed those of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would say of Jesus and his disciples, they're not strict enough. They would accuse them. Why do you not wash your hands with the ceremonial cleansing before you eat? Why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? You are breaking the rules. Jesus and his disciples were not nearly as strict as they could have been in the eyes of the Pharisees. 
Paul's upset because the, the Galatians are embracing legalism. They're, they're embracing the, the idea that their acceptance fr- from God is Jesus plus their obedience to the law. That the finished work of Jesus is not actually finished. That I need to finish it by doing something more. And it can look really holy on the outside. But I'm telling you, it's demonic to claim that the finished work of Jesus is not actually finished, but watch me as I get it done. That is a lie from the pits of hell. And it was entrapping Paul's friends. And so he's angry. But he says, he clarifies, it's not just about the Galatians keeping the feast days. I know that he points that out here. He says there, you observe, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. This is what he points out as the problem, that they've subscribed to the ceremonial laws of the Jewish custom and tradition and law. And he's like, what, what is happening here? It's not just that they're keeping it. It's not just that they're, that they're eating the feasts of the Jews. It's that they are looking to it to justify them. They're looking to it to make them right with God. Paul says in other passages that it's perfectly acceptable for you to keep those feasts and all that. You can keep the Jewish feasts, you can keep the the kosher laws, you can subscribe to circumcision. The issue is not whether or not you are keeping them. You can eat or not eat, you can drink or not drink, you can observe or not observe because you're free in the kingdom of God. But the Judaizers are saying something different. They're saying it does matter. They're saying that you need to rely on them to be made right with God. They're saying, that it's like what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, he's going to say, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. This is the issue. You who would be justified by the law have been severed from Christ, Paul says. You have fallen away from grace. He said it already in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's not that you should be afraid that if you follow the kosher laws, that that is what makes you unrighteous. It's that you were relying on them to make you right with God, Paul says. But Romans 14, Paul wrote, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so if this church was a mixed bag of ethnic, cultural Jews and Christians, all worshiping Christ and and, and family members adopted by faith alone. And the Jew wants to continue to enjoy these feasts and festivals that God taught him about. All the merrier. Maybe I want to go. Teach me. But are you relying on it to make you right with God? This is the issue at stake. This is what the Judaizers were teaching, that you must subscribe to the law to be made right with God. And Paul moves from from his distress over this into a compelling picture of all of the wreckage 
that this belief will wreak in the Galatian church that it's already begun to, to take place. He's pointing out three dire consequences for what happens when we trade in the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ for the false gospel of grace plus works. Number one is he points out that it destroys love. That it destroys love. This is in Galatians 4, 12 to 16. Paul wrote, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is lamenting that these, these Galatians, they loved him so well when he arrived. And it, he arrived sick. He arrived frail. He, uh, he arrived with some ailment that was affecting his vision. Some speculate that he had malaria based on the part of the world that he had just come from. I don't know what the specific affliction was, but it was so significant that it was a, a major burden to the Galatian people, and yet he arrives limping in to their region with nothing but the gospel, and that's all it took. They tended to his bodily needs, and they rejoiced and received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself, because he came to them bearing witness to the gospel. He testified, you guys would have plucked out your own eyeballs for me. And what now? I've become your enemy? By telling you the truth, the same truth that at one time caused you to want to pluck out your eyes for me? What is happening here is that legalism destroys love. The same man that they regarded as an angel sent of God, as Christ Jesus himself, they are now thinking of as an enemy because they have turned from the gospel of grace to the gospel, the false gospel of grace plus works. And Paul was used to this kind of thing. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, um, he wrote, they say about me, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul was used to people turning on him and talking about him and about the burden that he is, about how worthless he is, about how... how, uh, unremarkable he is in stature. I was reading earlier this week these ancient sources that testify about what Paul looked like. And uh, there was a, a guy, Philip Schaff, in 1910 who did all the work for us. And he went and read everything and made a list of everything that people wrote in the ancient world about what Paul looked like. And in History of the Christian Church, he, he wrote in his compilation this list. Paul was apparently ugly, short, stout, plump, of small head, bald, pale, with a face covered with a thick beard, an eagle nose, weak but piercing eyes, dark eyebrows, and his speech was embarrassed and faulty and gave a poor idea of his eloquence. So George Costanza with a beard, okay? (laughs) And that guy fumbles in to 
Galatia, like with malaria or whatever, such a burden upon them on arrival that they've got to all come together to keep the guy alive. And he gives to, he's bringing to them one thing with that stuttering speech, with that weak appearance, nothing in himself to look at or to boast in. He brings the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because he was carrying that most precious gift and he was indwelled by that most precious spirit, they received him as an angel of the Lord. And how quickly they forgot. And suddenly, in their minds, they regarded him as an enemy for that same truth. Like, Paul, you didn't give us the whole message. Paul, you held out on us. Paul, these guys... They've got a lot more together than you. When I think about how they look, how they walked in, and I think about how you walked in, and the message that they're carrying, which is contrary to yours, this seems a whole lot more trustworthy. And they had forgotten the beauty of Christ, and they had looked to the beauty of the flesh, and they preferred it. And it cost them love. It destroyed love. Ray Ortland wrote that there are two religions constantly competing for the soul of every church, the wondrous cross of divine sacrifice and the hideous cross of human sacrifice. If we are not settled and subdued and healed by the wondrous cross of Jesus, he wrote, where he offered himself as our scapegoat for our real moral guilt before God, we will go looking for a human victim as the scapegoat for our own guilty anxiety. We will sacrifice someone else on a cross of our own grotesque invention. There, there is a reason why the Bible says to every church, keep yourselves in the love of God. Honesty about our own sin helps us to stay inside God's felt love where we all can live again. What Ray was trying to say there is that ultimately if, you, if we don't come under the cross of Christ, if we don't see our sin upon his shoulders, if we do not come to see that we cannot have a righteousness that will satisfy the, the, the wrath of God, when we look at the cross, I mean, that just measures it for us. You're not going to be able to convince yourself that you can do it when you're looking at the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. You're just not going to be able to do that. You look away from the cross for two seconds, you're going to start telling yourself, I can do it. But you simply can't look at the holiness, the righteousness of God, and the just punishment of the Son on your behalf and say, I can add to that. That's just not going to happen. But if you look away from it, you will look for someone else to crucify. If you start to say, I can do it on my own, then you will look for someone else to blame. You will look for somebody else to take your punishment. You will look for somebody else to be better than, to put down, to present to God as, look, at least I'm not like this one. The cost of giving up the gospel of grace is love and nothing less. That leads me to my second point, which is that uh, Paul says that it also threatens to destroy the gospel culture. So that's between one-on-one, that it destroys love, and then it permeates throughout a church to the point that it will destroy your gospel culture. That's where he wrote, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. That's the culture that accompanies legalism. They make much of you for no good purpose. And they actually want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Many of you have been in churches like that man worshipers they make much of each other make much of the pastor 
Look at his righteousness. May we all become like him. There's a clip on uh, somewhere, it's old, of a pastor in a given moment, no, no pastor I would ever sit under, probably not a pastor at all in God's sight, who just is railing on his congregation. It's like a clip that went around, he's just like going around, just picking out people one at a time and just ripping them in front of the congregation and just like heaping on shame and condemnation on his body as if that's like the role of the, 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 the function of the pulpit destroying his people, cutting them down, and elevating himself above them. Why would that not happen? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be the function of church if all of us are getting together trying to out-earn each other into God's favor? It's the natural consequence of, of relying on the flesh for our righteousness, Paul is going to describe this behavior further in Galatians chapter 5. I'll save it for what I, to preach it more when we get to it. But he says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. It's only in order that they won't be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And guys, I know exactly what Paul is talking about there. I remember when we were, uh, last year when we were teaching the, I was teaching the servant leader development class that we had made, and there were uh, uh, several little pockets of time where my heart got wrong, and where I started to believe that something, that my righteousness was increasing as positive change was produced in you. That, that in this class, that if it's successful in deepening your devotion to the Lord and, and whatever, I don't know what I was believing at the time, that that's going to mean that I'm something. That you guys becoming better makes me right with God. It's, I want to boast in your flesh. And you want to boast in mine. That's what happens when we turn from the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ to the false gospel of grace plus works. I don't want to look honestly at my flesh, I, even though I know I'm not keeping the law, but maybe I can boast in yours. You ever do this? Comparison, thief of joy. Thief of love, thief of relationship. And lastly, Paul says, It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, he calls them, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The third consequence or cost of trading in the gospel of grace for the false gospel of grace plus works is it keeps Christ from being formed in you. Christ simply is not formed in you by works. Christ is formed in you by the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is God himself, the spirit in you, that forms Christ in you. And that's why Paul is laboring over them. Turn from this false gospel of faith plus works and, and hitch all your stakes on Christ alone. You want Christ to be formed in you? Turn away from the law to do that and turn to Christ himself to do that. 
And this was where it gets sticky. This is where we say, I, I know I'm saved by grace alone, but how do I get better? I know I'm saved by Jesus, but don't I kind of make me better? And what I'm trying to tell you, what Paul's trying to tell you, is Jesus saves you and Jesus sanctifies you. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that makes, that makes you right with Christ, is the same grace that makes you like Christ. He didn't just like cover you up like a mirage, like he's fooling God, like Christ has somehow like put, you, put a mask on you so that you can like trick God when you get to the pearly gates. Like it's some spy movie where he like puts Christ's thumbprint on you so that you can get through the, the keypad. It's not an illusion. Christ hasn't just declaratively made you right with God. He's actually made you in his image. He's actually put new life within you. He's actually achieved for you a new creation so that the old you has died and the new has come. Paul is making a, a, a rock-solid argument here that to have Christ formed in you is to forsake works and to cling to Christ. That's his labor. I want Christ to be formed in you, so turn from these works and look to Christ alone for your salvation. Because the salvation of, of Christ accomplishes more than your salvation. It accomplishes your conformity. You will be changed into the image of Christ by Christ himself. He didn't give you a template so that you could get to work. He gave you the spirit so that he could get to work. You understand? And it's in that peace that I want to invite you guys to pray with me now. And so if you guys will join me, we're going to wrestle with God over that truth.